to the Redemption Podcast. We hope you're blessed by today's message. Ready for a word? I get the privilege today to preach from one of my favorite passages to preach from. It's so misunderstood by many people and it paints Jesus in a different light than we're used to seeing him. Okay, so I just want to brace you. Cute little cuddly Jesus who sings kumbaya with everybody. He ain't showing up this morning. Okay, Jesus is going to say some stuff this morning. He's going to say some stuff that makes you wonder, what are you, what are you doing, Jesus? What are you doing? What you mean by that, Jesus? So turn with me to Matthew chapter 15. That sounds so nice, Gary. I love that little ambiance music. It makes me so much more anointed. All right, are you ready? We'll start reading at verse 22. When you have it, if you want to, you can stand. Stretch your legs out one more time. It says, And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. But he answered her not a word. It's a little rude, Jesus. I'm just going to say it. You hear her talking to you, Jesus, and you don't act like you do. It's not nice. It's not nice, Jesus. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, send her away, for she crieth after us. The disciples are like, Jesus, she's getting on our nerves. So do something. At the very least, send her away. Tell her you don't want her around. She's getting on our nerves. But he answered and said, I'm not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now I understand that, Jesus. I understand that originally you were sent to the Jews, but you're not the kind of person that allows protocol to get in the way of people. So what are you really saying, Jesus? You're not the kind of person to let policy get in front of people's needs. I'm not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then came she and worshiped him saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, it's not meet to take the children's bread and cast it to women. No, it's not what he says. It's not meet to take the children's bread and cast it to dogs. This was the line, Jesus. You just crossed it. Just going to say it. 
you just crossed the line. But look at how she responded in verse 27. She said, truth, Lord. I love this woman. Not romantically, I'm happy, happily married. But I love her mindset. Truth, Lord. Yet even the dogs, even the dogs, who let the dogs out? Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you help me to minister this message. Tailor it, make it specific and intimate to every individual under the sound of my voice. Empower, enable, and strengthen me to deliver this message as you have delivered it to me. Lord, I take no ownership or authorship or credit because I know that every good and perfect gift comes from above. Lord, we give you all the honor, all the praise, all the acknowledgement. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Give the Lord some praise. So the first thing that I want you to know, right off the bat, from the very beginning, that is that Jesus has traveled 50 miles out of his way through mountainous terrain, and he doesn't preach a single sermon. He doesn't give a single lecture. He doesn't heal a single person. He doesn't have a significant interaction with anyone besides the woman in our text. So it's obvious that Jesus has come to this region to have this specific interaction with this specific woman. I want you to remember that because it shows us that many things in our text are not what they seem to be. Which consequently is my subject for today as we continue the sermon series. If you can, I'm preaching from the subject it's not what it seems. Look at your neighbor and tell them it's not what it seems. As we unpack our text, I want you to continue to rehearse that phrase in your mind. It's not what it seems. In verse 22, this Canaanite Gentile woman presses through the dense crowd of people surrounding Jesus. And she says, have mercy on me. Wait a minute, I thought she was coming on behalf of her daughter. So why, should, why would she begin with the phrase, have mercy on me? It's because she understands that effective intercession requires you to identify with the pain of someone else. It requires you to identify with their struggle and their experience and their perspective. The reason there's not many good intercessors left, there's not many great prayer warriors left, is because we live in a conceited society in which it is increasingly harder for us to step out of our shoes and into someone else's. But this woman knew how to do it. And she said, have mercy on me. My daughter's pain is my pain. Her suffering is my suffering. Her experience is my experience. Her scars are my scars. Her wounds are my wounds. Have mercy on me. Oh Lord, thou son of David. She refers to Jesus as the son of David. 
which is a messianic term. She was acknowledging Jesus as the Messiah, something that most of the disciples had not done up until this point. Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David, for my daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. This woman does everything right. She identifies with her daughter's pain. She acknowledges Jesus as the Messiah. But how did Jesus respond? Verse 23 says, But he answered her not a word. This woman is crying out, not some pretty, eloquent prayer. She is crying out, snot coming out of her nose, tears coming out of her eyes. She knows how desperate her situation is. Everyone around Jesus hears her, but Jesus acts as if she's not speaking at all. He answers her, not a word. Have you ever been praying and Jesus just wasn't speaking? Crying out and Jesus just wasn't speaking. Pleading. And Jesus just wasn't speaking. He answered her not a word. I'm sure that it's, it's been a while since some of us have been in school. Even those of you who go to school, it's been a while since you've been in school. But I'm sure you remember that during a test, the teacher is typically silent. She's not instructing. She's not lecturing. She's not giving directions. She is typically still and silent. I say that because Jesus' silence is an indication that this woman's faith is about to be tested in a very dramatic way. Jesus' silence would have discouraged many people. But it didn't discourage this woman because she understood that silence is not always negative. Silence is not always negative. Silence is not the same as no. Delays are not the same as denials. Silence is not always a negative thing. Let me give you an example. To get anywhere outside of Laurel County, I have to use the GPS on my phone. I can't rely on road signs. I get nervous and I make a quick decision and I end up 50 miles south of where I was supposed to be. I have to frequently use, I'm talking about going to Lexington. I have to use the GPS on my phone to find Guitar Center in Lexington. Even though there's seven of them, I have to use the GPS on my phone. And when I'm using the GPS on my phone, there's often long periods of silence. Sometimes I get insecure because the GPS ain't speaking to me. I don't know if, if I'm going in the right direction. She ain't said nothing for 45 minutes. There are often long periods of silence. But you know what? That silence doesn't mean that I'm doing something wrong or that I need to do something different. When the GPS is silent, you know what it means? It means I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to do and I just need to keep it up. This woman in our text rightfully saw Jesus' silence as an invitation to press on. Keep doing what you're doing. And so she responded to Jesus' silence with persistence. Okay, you're not going to say nothing? I'll just keep on. You ain't told me no? I'll just keep on. 
You ain't told me to go away, I'll just keep on. You ain't told me to reroute, I'll just keep on. I must be on course. I must be making some headway. I must be moving in the right direction. I'll just keep on. Some of you need to hear that in the spirit right now. I'll just keep on. Just keep on. Just, I know you haven't seen a vision from heaven. I know you haven't heard God speak in a while, but you're on the right track. Don't get insecure now. Just keep going. And so she did. She just kept praying. Have mercy on me, O Lord. My daughter is vexed. Have mercy on me, O Lord. My daughter is Have mercy on me, O Lord. Got on the disciples' nerves. Have mercy on me, O Lord. My daughter is grievously vexed. And after a period of silence, Jesus spoke up in verse 24 and said, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus essentially said, it's not a good time. It's not a good time. Because my primary mission is to minister to the Jews. Jesus' primary mission was to minister to the Jews. It was only after the Jews rejected Jesus that we became beneficiaries and recipients of the new covenant. When God sent Jesus, his first mission was to minister to the Jews and he was cautious not to divert his attention away from the mission that God had sent him to accomplish. But he's not the kind of savior that puts protocol in front of people. He's not the kind of savior that puts policy in front of people. Yet in this moment, Jesus seems indifferent. I mean, there's no way to read verse 24 and not feel like Jesus isn't really that concerned about this woman's crisis. But remember, Jesus has traveled 50 miles out of his way to have this encounter with this woman. So things are not, they're not what they seem to be. They are not what they seem to be. Even though it seems like Jesus is reluctant to help this woman she is made of the real stuff because she doesn't get discouraged at all. Look at her response in verse 25 to Jesus saying, I'm not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You're not of the right culture. You're not of the right race. You're not of the right ethnicity. She came and worshiped him saying, Lord, help me. Even after Jesus' silence, even after his seeming indifference, she worshiped him. I point that out because if there's anything that will move the heart of God, it is sincere worship based exclusively on who he is. Not what he can give, not what he can do, not what he can bless you with, but just who he is. We know that this woman was worshiping Jesus based on who he is because she had not gotten the response she was looking for and yet she still worshiped. I wonder if you can do that. Can you worship Jesus when you don't get the response you're looking for? When you don't get the outcome you're looking for? When the bill is still unpaid? When things get worse instead of better? When things get harder instead of easier, can you worship Him just because you know that your circumstance doesn't change who He is? See, if you haven't realized it by now, Jesus is putting this woman through a series of tests. 
His silence was test one. His seeming indifference was test two. But if the first two responses of Jesus were tests, this last one's going to be the final exam. Jesus seemed silent at first, then indifferent, but now Jesus is going to seem downright offensive. I don't know if you know this or not. I don't know if any preachers ever told you this or not. And I hate to bust your proverbial bubble of who Jesus is and how he's sort of like a sandal-wearing hippie who just sings kumbaya with everybody and never says anything controversial and never ruffles any feathers. But at the risk of busting that bubble, I want you to know that Jesus sometimes had a tendency to say controversial things that could be interpreted as extremely offensive. Honestly, if I'm being transparent, many of us are way too easily offended to have been one of Jesus' original followers. We are way too... No, you couldn't be Peter and John and them boys. No, you are way too easily offended, myself included. We are way too easily offended to have been one of Jesus' original disciples. Let me prove it to you because I want to just share with you some of the things that Jesus is on record saying to his disciples. Jesus once looked at Peter and said... Get behind me, Satan. Now, you can debate about whether Jesus was calling Peter Satan or he was speaking to Satan who was in Peter. But either way, that's not a flattering statement. It's never a confidence boost when your leader looks at you and compares you to Satan. I wonder if you could follow somebody who rebuked you so strongly said you was acting like the devil. In another instance, the disciples came to Jesus and asked him to explain a parable that he had recently told. But apparently, Jesus expected them to get it when he said it because Jesus was extremely dissatisfied with their question and he responded by saying, are you still so dull? Well, sorry, Jesus, I read it and I didn't get it. And I was asking questions to try to learn. And I come to you in sincerity and you're going to respond like that. You're going to ask, are you still so dull? I guess I am. Dull as a butter knife, Jesus. That's what I am, I guess. In another instance, Jesus looked at his disciples and said, how foolish you are. Slow to believe all that the prophets have said. Then in another instance, the disciples failed to pull off a miracle and Jesus in frustration throws his hands in the air and says, how long shall I put up with you? Just chill, Jesus. Okay, I ain't never moved any mountains before. This is routine business for you, but it's a little difficult for me. He said, how long shall I put up with you? How many of us could say that we wouldn't have been offended and walked away if Jesus was speaking to us like that? I don't think many of us could. Because even now as I'm speaking, some of you are going through the library in your head and you're thinking, yeah, I left that church for much less. I got upset and unfriended that person on Facebook for a whole lot less than what Jesus said to the disciples. My point is, Jesus had a tendency to say controversial things that could be deemed as extremely offensive. Honestly, one of the most difficult jobs in all of history would have been being Jesus' PR guy. You know, his public relation guy. Come up here, Josh. 
I'll give you a few examples. You're going to love this. I love this kind of stuff. This, this is just Jesus. This is who he is, okay? So Jesus is speaking to a multitude of people. Probably the biggest crowd that he has ever preached in front of in his life. Everything is coming together. His popularity is growing exponentially. People are coming to the hot, dry, miserable, humid desert just to hear this man speak. And so the service is going real good and people are just sitting on the edge of their seat waiting with bated breath to hear what Jesus is about to say. And then the time of the service comes where the minister gives the altar call. And Jesus gives, by 21st century church terms, the worst altar call to have ever been given. Okay? Look at Jesus' altar call in Luke 14, 26. If any man come to me, translation, if you want to be saved today, you need to hate your daddy Hate your mama too. Matter of fact, hate your wife and kids and your brothers and your sisters. You need to hate them all. You need to hate yourself or you cannot be my disciple. Now, in my mind, I imagine Jesus' PR guy saying, listen, listen, listen. Our ministry just started growing, okay? And I know what you're saying. I know that you are saying their love for you should be so much greater than their love for anyone or anything else that when they compare their love for anyone or anything else to their love for you, it should seem like, hey, I know what you're saying, Jesus, but they don't get it. The multitude is packing their bags and going home, Jesus. They're going home because they think that you literally meant you need to hate your mommy and daddy and wife and kids and your brothers and sisters. That's what they think, Jesus, okay? And guess what? Some of them, they do hate their mommy and daddy and wife and children, but that's not the kind of people you want following you, Jesus. So if you don't walk back to the podium and explain yourself, these people are going to leave. Oh, you ain't going to do it? Okay. okay. I'm just trying to be your PR guy, Jesus. You just ain't going to do it. Just let them leave, Jesus. They're taking their fish and their bread back home, Jesus. Okay. All right. All right. That was one time. Then another time after that, Jesus is at a leader's conference, a leader's retreat with his disciples. But at this point, he has 70 disciples, not just 12, but 70 disciples. Out of nowhere, Jesus does it again. He steps up, John 6, 53. Jesus says, I say unto you, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Can I have a minute, Jesus? Listen, those are the tithe payers out there, okay? There are boosters. There are supporters, okay? And I know that you're talking about communion, a little bread, a little grape juice, no big deal. But they don't know you're talking about that, Jesus. They think you're referring to the latest chapter of Twilight, okay? They think this is a, a vampire religion now, Jesus. So if you don't explain yourself, they're going to leave. Actually, 58 of them just left, Jesus, we're left with the bad ones, Peter and John and them. That's the best you got, Jesus. If you don't step up and explain yourself, they're all going to leave. And Jesus, do you really want the ones that would stay when you told them to eat your flesh and drink your blood? There's something wrong with them, Jesus. You got to explain yourself. You're not going to. But they're offended, Jesus. You don't care. 
You don't care that they're offended. What are you going to do with 12? 12, Jesus, that's all you got. 12. You don't care. Oh. All right, all right. Then, then, in another instance, would-be follower of Jesus comes up and expresses his excitement. And he has one request. He says, listen, can I go and bury my father before I become an official follower? And in Matthew 8, 22, Jesus, in his loving way, in his kumbaya kind of way, he says, follow me and let the dead bury their dead. Jesus. The boy just wants to attend the fa his father's funeral. Wait a minute. There's more to it than that? He's asking for more than that? Well, you got to explain that to everybody because everybody looking in on this situation just thinks you're insensitive, Jesus. Wait a minute. You don't care how you're perceived, Jesus? Well, I'm going to go on monster.com and look for another job because obviously I'm not effective at being your PR guy because you don't care about public relations. But the most difficult one, the most difficult one to take is when Jesus looked at the woman in our text and said, it's not meat to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. Okay, Jesus, I've dealt with everything else you said. But if we're going to grow this ministry, you can't use any analogy that refers to a woman as a dog. That's almost profanity, Jesus. It's almost the B word, Jesus. I'm just going to say it, okay? And we can't grow the church if you're going to use that word, Jesus. You just compared that woman who came to you, who acknowledged you as the Messiah, as a dog, Jesus. And there's some, little, there's some men back there that are really excited about it because they use that word too, but that's not the kind of people you want. So what are we going to do, Jesus? See, give Josh, give, give Josh slash Jesus a hand clap. Of course, there are great explanations for every controversial statement that Jesus ever made. But the point is, Jesus chose to say them the way, say, say these things the way that he said them. You can't tell me that Jesus could not have chosen different words to express the idea of communion rather than eat my flesh and drink my blood. You can't tell me that Jesus couldn't have chose different words to express our love for him rather than hate your mommy and daddy. Jesus is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He knows how to articulate ideas and concepts. But sometimes he chose to say things in the most controversial way. Why? Well, I don't know why. But we may find a clue when the Bible says God resists the proud. One symptom of the disease of pride is offense. That's why you say things like, nobody talks to me like that. Nobody treats me like that. Nobody addresses me like that. They don't know who I am. One of the symptoms of the disease of pride is offense. The Bible says God resists the proud. So maybe one way he resists the proud is by laying an opportunity to be offended at their feet. Maybe this is why Jesus said in Matthew eleven six. And blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. What if the test that determined whether or not you were going to receive what God has for you is your ability to resist the opportunity to be offended? 
What if the opportunity to be offended determines whether you're humble enough to receive what God has for you next? See, if you're going to receive all that God has for you, you're going to have to overcome the opportunity to be offended because the opportunity to be offended will cause you to walk away from your breakthrough. Jesus looks at this woman and says, it's not meat to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. How she responded to that statement would determine whether she walked away with her miracle or whether she just walked away. How'd she, how'd she respond? Verse 27, she says, Truth, Lord! Yet the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Look at what she did. She responded to the opportunity to be offended with humility. She essentially said, I don't deserve anything from you. But here's, here's the thing. Because I don't deserve anything from you, everything you give me will be based on your goodness, not mine. Which means everything you do in my life, you'll get the glory for. Everything you do in my life, you'll be honored for. Everything you do in my life, you'll get the credit for. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. I know that you're probably getting tired of me saying this, but I believe that we are on the brink of the greatest outpouring that our generation has ever experienced. I believe that we are about to experience a mighty move of God. Last week I told you that on your way to receiving what God was about to release, on your way to positioning yourself for what God is about to pour out, there will be obstacles, obstacles that are intimidating, obstacles that strike fear into your heart and ignite the visions of doubt, the, the voices rather, of doubt in your mind, obstacles that cause you want to give up, turn loose, give out, obstacles that cause you to want to collapse and crumble. Obstacles that threaten to discourage you from pursuing what you're believing God for. Obstacles that cause you to think it's not going to happen. It's not going to work out. It's not getting any better. It's not improving. I've went backwards. I'm not progressing. I'll never see God's glory. Not in this situation. Not in this condition. Not in this circumstance. There'll be obstacles. However, what I didn't tell you last week sometimes it will seem as if God is placing those obstacles in front of us. I don't know if you've walked with the Lord long enough to experience this, but, but sometimes it seems as if God is making my journey harder. Sometimes it seems as if God is adding to my heavy load. Sometimes it seems as if God doesn't want it to work out. Sometimes it seems as if God doesn't want to help me. Sometimes it seems as if God is standing idly by, allowing every negative thing to unfold in my life. In the Old Testament, Hannah acknowledged that the Lord had shut up her womb. She said, I can't have a baby. And it's not because of Satan. It's not because of a demon. It's not because of another person. It's not because of a genetic defect. God has shut up my womb. How do we respond when it feels like God is placing obstacles in front of us? 
like God's not on our side. I don't think there's any better example of this than Matthew chapter 15. If we're honest in this chapter, Jesus seems silent, indifferent, and offensive. It didn't seem like he wanted to help this woman. It didn't seem like he wanted to answer her prayers. It didn't seem like he wanted to do a miracle in her life. It didn't seem like he wanted to help her daughter. It seemed like Jesus was placing obstacles in this woman's way to keep her from receiving what she was asking for. Yet, somehow, don't ask me how because I don't understand the details of it. I just observe it in our text. Somehow, these obstacles that Jesus placed in her way increased, not decreased her faith. They increased, not decreased her commitment. Increased, not decreased her passion. These obstacles that Jesus placed in her way elevated her faith, positioning her to receive the mighty move of God that she was about to experience. Let me break it down for you. Jesus' silence only brought out her persistence. Jesus' indifference only made her more passionate. And Jesus' offensive statement only made her more humble. Every obstacle brought out her potential and positioned her to receive what she was in pursuit of. When you hear that, I know it's hard to wrap your mind around, but when you hear that, I want you to come to the conclusion that Jesus knows what he's doing. Even when he remains silent and he's not saying anything and he's not speaking into your heart, Jesus knows what he's doing. Even when it feels like he doesn't care about what you're going through and what you're struggling with and how your heart is broken and tears are streaming down your face, he knows, he knows what he's doing. Even when it seems like Jesus is working against you, like he's not on your side, like he's not a friend that sticks closer than a brother, like he's not your ally, like he's not your confidant. Even then, he knows what he's doing. And what he's doing is for your good and the good of everyone around you. When it seems like Jesus is ignoring your prayers, it's not what it seems. When it seems like Jesus is asleep and unaware, it's not what it seems. When it seems like Jesus is unconcerned about your crisis and your struggle and your disappointment and your devastation, it's not what it seems. When it seems like Jesus is working against you, it's not what it seems. There is more going on than what you see. There is more going on than what you hear. There is more going on than what you feel. There is more going on than what you're going through. Prove it, pastor. I can't prove it. There comes a time in your life where you have to give Jesus the benefit of the doubt. The benefit of the doubt. The benefit of the doubt. When someone has been true and faithful for an extended period of time and you experience a situation that paints that person in an unflattering light, you have to, off your past record with that person, give them the benefit of the doubt. Seems like you don't care, Jesus, but I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. It doesn't seem like you're moving for me, but I'm going to give you 
the benefit of the doubt. It doesn't seem like I'm going to be healed, Jesus, but I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt. It doesn't seem like I have victory, Jesus, but I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt. No matter what storm I'm in, no matter what's up against me, no matter how I'm being attacked, no matter what they're saying, no matter how it feels like I'm going backwards and I'm not progressing and I'm not improving, Jesus, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to trust you in this process. You see, that's what Job was saying when in the middle of Job's crisis, he opened up his mouth and said, though he slay me, yet shall I trust in him. See, you can't say that you have strong faith until you're willing to have faith when it feels like God is orchestrating your pain. Though he slay me, though it feels like he's standing idly by and letting the enemy wreak havoc in my life, though it feels like he's not providing for me and mine, though it feels like his promise is unfulfilled and his work is incomplete, though he's slain yet, yet I know who he is. My faith is based on his character, not my circumstance. I know who he is and I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and I'm going to trust him even when I can't trace him. I'm going to trust him through all of this. Look at your neighbor and tell him, you got to trust the Lord. 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 You got to trust the Lord because the challenges you're facing are not meant to stop you. They're meant to strengthen you. These setbacks are not meant to stop you. They're meant to strengthen you. This attack is not meant to stop you. It's meant to strengthen you. This diagnosis is not meant to stop you. It's meant to strengthen you. This storm is not meant to stop you. It's meant to strengthen you. This chaos is not meant to stop you. It's meant to strengthen you. But pastor, I don't feel like I'm getting stronger. I feel like I'm getting weaker. Have you ever been to the gym? Strength is birthed in collapse. Strength is birthed in fatigue. Strength is birthed in exhaustion. Strength is birthed in weakness. When you come to that point of weakness, that's when you're getting stronger. This is not meant to stop you. It's meant to strengthen you. Your journey is as important as your destination. Your journey is as important as your destination. Mike, come up here for just a second. Just stand up against that wall. Tell me to come to you. No, you, no, you stay there. You tell me to come to you. I'm called. You heard it. He called me. I'm called. Billy Dean Shelton called, called, but I've not arrived yet, not arrived yet, called to be a pastor, called to be an entrepreneur, called to change my community, called to raise my children, called to be a good father, called to be a leader, called to chase the demons out of my past and out of my family and out of my city. I'm called, but, but I've not arrived yet, and see, what happens is 
He calls me. And then as I start moving toward what he called me to, he prepares me as I go. So with each step, I am becoming more of what he envisioned and less of what I was. I've not arrived yet, but I'm not who I used to be. And with every step, though I feel weak, I'm getting stronger. Though I feel exhausted, I'm becoming a more capable, more able person. My journey is as important as my destination because my journey prepares me for my destination. You see, somebody give God some praise. You see, when you're pursuing a move of God in any area of your life, He uses your pursuit to bring out the best of your potential. I don't know how He does it, but he uses the crushing. He uses the heavy weight. He uses the exhaustion. He uses the frustration. He uses the disappointment to bring out the best in you. God doesn't want indifferent, apathetic people. God doesn't want people that have no desire, no vision, and no dream. God doesn't want people that are complacent to stay where they are and where they've been. God wants people who go after something because while you're going after something, God changes you into who you're supposed to be. So if there's something you want, if there's a goal you want to accomplish, if there's a vision in your mind, if there's a dream in your heart, if it's good for you, if it's good for others, if it can be used to exalt the name of the Lord, go after it. Not passively, not hesitantly, but wholeheartedly. Step out of the boat, Peter. Go after it with everything you have. Because during your relentless pursuit, God is going to use every difficulty, every disappointment, every stress and frustration, every heartache, every tear to bring out the best in you. He's going to bring out the best in you. See, Lord willing, this will be the final message of the series that I've been preaching. But when we started this sermon series, I asked you to write down three things that you wanted your limitless Lord to do. but I sort of tricked you. Me and Jesus, we tricked you because we knew that if we could get you running after something that seemed out of reach, something that seemed impossible, something that seemed beyond your ability, if we could get you running, that while you were running after your heart's desire, he would change you into the man or woman of God that you're supposed to be. I asked you to write down three things that you wanted your limitless Lord to do. And I believe with every fiber of my being that we're about to see the glory of God. I believe it now more than ever before. Even though we've seen a pandemic, even though we see chaos and violence and struggle and crisis, all of that is just setting the stage. It's just the opening act for God to do what He's about to do. We're about to see His glory. And you're going to be able to check some of those things off your list. Honestly, I've talked to two people who made their list when we started this sermon series. 
and they've already checked things off of their list. And I'm not talking about little baby things. I'm talking about life-altering, life-changing, never going to be the same again, never going back to where I was again. Life-altering movements. We ain't even finished the sermon. We ain't even finished the sermon series and people are already marking things off their list. So you're going to see the glory of God. You're going to mark some things off your list. But don't be surprised if while you're running, while you're running to start your church, while you're running to be a businessman, while you're running to be a better husband, while you're running to make your vision come to pass, while you're running to catch your dream, don't be surprised if you look up and you realize, I'm not who I used to be anymore. I don't look like what I looked like when I first started running. I'm not the man I was when I began this journey. I didn't realize it, but with every step that I was seeking a change in my circumstance, God was using my circumstance to bring forth a change in me. I'm not who I was. Don't be surprised if when you start running, you look up and God has changed you. Don't be surprised if the greatest work God does in this season is what he does in you, what he brings out of you who he shapes and molds you into. You're going to have your heart's desire, but when you get to your heart's desire, don't be surprised if you have a completely different heart. If you would, stand to your feet. I want to pray with you, and then we'll give our altar call. Lord, this sermon series is something that we're going to continue to talk about for the rest of the year. This is the season in which you remind the world that all things are possible. We've set our sights higher. We're reaching further. We're ready to see your glory demonstrated in our life. But Lord, as, as we run, let us feel enough resistance to strengthen us, but not stop us. Let us feel enough resistance so that we slowly start becoming the men and women of God that you have called us to be. Lord, set it up. So that when we finally see you do what we're asking you to do, that we are no longer who we used to be. Change us in this process, Lord. As we look for a change in our circumstance, use our circumstance to bring forth a change in us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Listen, if you're here and you're lost, I just want to pray with you. I just just want you to give Jesus an opportunity. I just want you to give Jesus a chance. The Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. You don't have to judge something before you've tried it. He said, come to me and see if I'm not true. Come to me and see if I'm not faithful. Come to me and see if I won't set you free. Come to me and see if I won't deliver you. If you want to make that change, that decision, 
I want to invite you up now to this altar to confess your sins, to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, to receive the sacrifice that he has made on your behalf. Thank you for listening to the Redemption Podcast. We hope you have enjoyed today's message. For more great messages, please subscribe on iTunes or Google Play Music and leave us a rating and review while you're there. For more information, please visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash redemptionky.